Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you from Miami Beach, South Beach in Florida. It's a lovely sunny day as usual out there. We haven't had the customary summer thunderstorm with rain, lightning and thunder. There's a huge storm approaching the coast as we speak, Um, but I have a very interesting guest today, a guy I've known for about eight years. He is a man who's got his finger in so many pies, and it's difficult to know where to start with the conversation with Kevin Sharpley, who's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Kevin is uh, self-bills himself as a media maker, and that's deliberately vague because he is involved in transmedia, advertising, documentary production, writing, comic books, and everything like that. And we're going to take that journey with him today. Both of us met about eight years ago on a trip to Haiti. It was a weird thing I got sent on by my agency at the time to go and try and launch some artisan brands with a company called Brand Trade um, down there. And I met Kevin there. Kevin was working on a documentary. This was before the earthquake. Tell us a little bit first about your involvement with Haiti. So I've been involved with Haiti for many years. If you live in Miami, Haiti is right in your face huge Haitian population and Haiti has always been of interest to me just because of its its unique makeup yeah. it's the poorest country in the western hemisphere it's one of the more complicated scenarios in the world but as a storyteller I wanted to contribute mm-hmm. my part in the conversation so I started a documentary which is more about the history of Haiti and for its patriots Two families and uh, two individuals mm-hmm. that left Haiti during different regimes. And so that one is narrated by Danny Glover. Mm-hmm. And it you know, begins from Haiti's independence and takes you up to around 2000, 2001. What's the name of it? It's called Souvenu. Souvenu, which means save us. Right. And we've shown it a couple of times in kind of private screenings. And I was chosen as there's an art organization called the Miami Light Project. Mm-hmm. One month out of the year, they have this Here and Now Showcase. So they f- they feature Miami artists. Yeah. And so I was chosen as one of their artists. Did that documentary. The immediate response to that documentary was just panic. <laughs> <laughs> um, why, why was it panic? Dire situation. What can yeah. we do? Yeah. What, this was, and this was all pre-earthquake, right? Oh, this is way before yeah. the earthquake. Yeah, And so I decided that it would be incumbent upon me to show the other side because that documentary really painted a, a bleaker picture, not, not, you know, not totally uh, dystopian picture, but a bleaker picture. Mm-hmm. And there is another side to Haiti. Haiti's a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of de- deforestation and a lot of things that have happened, but you know, there's a lot of areas in Haiti mm-hmm. that people would have no idea. Haiti used to be owned by the French, and they kind of raped and pillaged a bit there. They took all the trees away, first of all, for their fancy French furniture, which caused the place to become a dust bowl. It's on the island of Hispaniola and shares the island with Dominican Republic, where you fly over them. You can see the the border is basically trees on one side, which is Dominican Republic, and no trees on the Haiti side. And, of course, with no trees comes soil erosion and landslides and stuff like that and inability to become agriculturally adept. I have been around the world in many 
I've been to Africa, I've spent a lot of time around poor countries in Asia like India and, and, and seen a lot of poverty, but I'd never been struck before by the kind of lack of hope that I saw in Haiti. The way I used to sort of paint it was on one side of a river of effluent running down the main street, you have the people, and on the other side you have the government, and the people looking at the government going, Is, are you going to clean this up? And the, the, the government going, clean what up? And nothing happens. You know, as, as Kevin says, it's the poorest country in, in the Western Hemisphere. And it's it's sheer lack of hope, I think, that that was the thing that I, I found most. Tell me a bit about about what you view, how you view the country. Yeah, there's definitely a, a dichotomy, mm-hmm. you know, and a disparity between the haves and haves not, have-nots. I've lived in Africa and a lot of places around this world, and I feel the sentiment. You know, that's a similar sentiment. I do feel that, you know, the people, irregardless, get on with things, you know, and they move forward and they they have a way about doing things and getting things accomplished that I would say would be unique to anything that I've experienced. When I decided to do the second documentary, I wanted to create a mosaic of conversation what can be done, who's doing what, and also show some of the beauty of Haiti. You know, so you go to places like Jacmel, Labadie. The second documentary, which is called Nous Sauvé, uh, Nous Sauvé means uh, we are saved. And it's not necessarily, you know, we are saved by any one particular entity. It's more we are saved internally. Here is a presentation of, you know, what can be done. And some things that are being done, you know, and to discover what happened to move the needle forward. Well, now, well, that's why the do- that documentary is not done. Right. The first one, I definitely want to put them both out at the same time. Okay. So I guess you could say the, the the first one is in post. The second one, we started before the earthquake, so we did start production on the second documentary, covering a dance company, the biggest dance company out of Haiti. Aika Dance and their partnership with the Adrian Arch Center, which is a performing arts center here. You you have, as you said, traveled an awful lot, and we've come to the other big project you're you're working on called the Beach Chronicles. But I thought it might be good to frame that because the philosophy that you've built behind the Beach Chronicles, I think a lot of it comes from your travels. So maybe we maybe tell us where you where you came from and what it was like for you growing up here in, in America. Yeah, so I, I was born in Detroit. My family moved when I was younger. Two or three. Then we moved outside of Chicago. Growing up in the Midwest really gave you a concept of the general thought of America. The way that the Midwest sees things. I think things are changing a bit. has a lot to do with the way the country sees things. Yeah, one so, of the things I think Kevin's referring to is that the outliers really in America are the East Coast and the West Coast, where there's generally a little bit more intelligence, for want of a better word. <laughs> with, 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 great, with, with great apologies to my towns of Denver and Dallas and Chicago where I worked. But no, they're, they're, I think what he's referring to, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but that there is, there is more of a sense of the real uh, latent America in the, in the middle, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a a blue-collar sensibility, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily a bad thing. But oftentimes, the dynamic of this country, the dynamic of the world, you know, is becoming, you know, there's a more global view. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. In order to have that view, you just have to have an open mind and an understanding 
of and things are changing they're going to change there's no stopping it mm. so <laughs> from there my family moved to Kentucky lovely <laughs> so <laughs> so Louisville Kentucky for six years or seven years or so famous for where Muhammad Ali is from right? yes uh-huh. yes that is a big claim to fame and the Kentucky Derby which is bigger Kentucky than the Super Derby. Bowl mint juleps and um so that was interesting because, you know, you, you get to see another side and being a black man, you can't see me, but I am a black man. <laughs> well, I was a black boy then. Mm-hmm. You see and you feel um, some of what now is becoming more of an ever present tension. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily feel it as much when I was a child, but reflectively, mm-hmm. I can really, really see, um, you know, some of. The challenges that we face now. Mm. So from there, moved back to Detroit proper, which was challenging, you know, having uh, lived in the suburbs and the American dream and, you know, the nice house and, Mm. you know, one dog and two kids, the whole that whole thing. A tough experience. I had a southern accent moving into the city. You know, there was a lot of conflict for me at that point, but it was interesting to live in the inner city and see another side. These are all things that have shaped me into who I am today. So Detroit was a city that suffered, obviously, really heavily in the last 15 years. Depopulation, high unemployment, crime, lack of police. I mean, I visited there in, in about four years ago, and that was the only real city I visited where I was like, you know, a little bit scared. Well, no, actually, I, did, I was a little bit in Baltimore, but I think that's just the wire, the series in my head that that was causing that. But, and I also, uh, as, as guys in Detroit said, when I finally walked down to the city center, I actually chose Cass as the street to walk down, which is apparently, they, were, they went, what, you're still here? You didn't get killed? <laughs> they were telling me, yeah. I was like trying to act like a hard Irishman walking down through this kind of really scary neighborhood and... Uh, and I got approached a few times, but I was a bit, yeah, um, yeah I, was, I found it a bit nerve-wracking and as if the the um, pavements were being overtaken by grass. And so there was very yeah. little, there was very little. That, that wasn't there when you were there, but you talked to me the other night about the renaissance that's happening there. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, well, definitely Detroit is having an, an influx of the creative yeah. class. And, you know, you have uh, Dan Gilbert of Quicken Loans, you know, I think he invested about a billion dollars into the downtown area. That's definitely going to germinate and create a situation of growth. Mm. What so, did your uh, parents do? And tell me a bit about your, your family life when you were growing up. My mom has a master's in mental health counseling. Okay. So, you know, that kind of makes things interesting. My real father, uh, and part of the reason why we moved so much when I was a child, he was an executive for Westinghouse. So, you know, we would move in accordance to, you know, where they shift them around in the mm-hmm. job. He's passed uh, since. He, he was laid off. And then my parents divorced. And then he moved into the hood. I say the inner city. Right. Black people will say the hood. So did you have to come down from a reasonably middle class to a slightly more... Yeah, we were upper middle class. Upper middle class, yeah. And definitely... Um, Suddenly times got It tough. hit a wall, yeah. What age were you when that happened? That had to be about 14, right. you know, 13, 14. But that didn't last that long. And, and this, is, this is a pretty cool story. Maybe two years later, my mom was able to, you know, get a, a really good job and start to pick the family back up. And we moved into a suburb of Detroit. 
uh, Oak Park. My mom met her now husband, who I also called my father, and we moved to Miami, I would say about four years after having moved there. Moving to Miami was another eye-opening experience. So did you love it when you got here? I loved it. Yeah. It was great. Kevin is a big um, advocate for Miami. He's got, he, as I said at the start of the show, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies, but he seems to know everybody. If you're ever coming to Miami, uh, get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with this guy. He'll certainly, he'll certainly give you the right advice and steer you straight. Um, so getting here at 16, were you um, good at school? What was your school situation like? No, I mean, at that point, you know, I'd already been so, through so much. So I, you were always changing school. Yeah, we had shifted yeah. around a yeah. lot. And then, you know, all the turmoil with the family and the moving around really took me away from from that side of things. So by the time we got to Miami, grades, I didn't care about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was C's at best, yeah, you know, okay. some B's, some A's. <laughs> and you know, I really saw Miami as a place where you could create your own place, your own sense of being. Did all you know about, you were going to be artistic? Was that the, the thing that you were missing or creative? Or when did you realize you had that in you? Well, no, I, I realized that early on. My, you know, my brother's an artist. Right. He's also a rapper. He writes. He draws. He's a super talented in the arts. My grandfather made his living as an artist. He was a commercial artist. Okay. My grandmother, her dream was to be an opera singer. It's just during her time, it was just not necessarily in the cards for a black woman. Mm. So she ended up being a psych nurse. But, you know, that artistic vein is within my family. Family, For me, my artistic side has more to do with writing. Mm -hmm. So I've been writing since I was seven. You know, I picked up, uh, well, I read a lot of books. Mm. And I was really happy, you know, like The Lord of the Rings, so Tolkien was huge for me I read those when I was you know seven eight everything I couldn't get enough of them and poetry and then everything from Poe to Shakespeare to Hughes because I was always consumed by words and the juxtaposition of words and how do you create these worlds with words and I do a lot of different things you know I draw I paint sculpt so when you were finishing school you 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 didn't go straight to college did you, you I did oh you did okay but yeah, no but I didn't stu- I didn't study what I ended up studying, I went for fashion design. What was Miami Day Community College, which is now Miami Day College? Mm-hmm. So that's quite a famous college, yeah. It is, yeah. It's the biggest college of its type in the country. Community colleges and colleges of that time are of that type are very important. Mm-hmm. I last year was asked by the president of Miami Day College to speak on behalf of Debt Free College. And so explain to those people who are coming from this to this podcast from outside the United States where debt-free college is a norm rather than the exception, what that, <laughs> what that all means. It's basically that if you have the aptitude and the desire, you can have a higher education regardless of uh, financial status. Right. Now, I had to pay for every one of my classes because my parents made too much money. Well, we might put a link on the podcast just to, to, to that whole subject. That yeah, that'd be great. great. Um, you also got into modeling. Tell me about that. So from the fashion design area, which I still love it and will more than likely go back to that area, I ended up working in clothing stores. 
And a photographer came in, um, asked me to come and take some pictures. The next day, I you know, acquired the pictures from him. And he, he uh, told me to go to some agencies here in Miami. At the time, modeling was the biggest thing. Gianni Versace was still alive. Yeah. So you, you weren't planning this. This also just no, happened. Right? No, no. So the modeling agency went, right, you're what we're looking for. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I ended up going, you know, I worked at the Hard Rec Cafe for, you know, it opened up here and that was really fun. Um, all the big stars and stuff like that. But then and you start to become addicted to that. Uh, South Beach was different back then. So I was also a promoter. In those days, you, it really wasn't about VIP and velvet ropes and, you know, the bottle service. Yeah. And it was more about, you know, enjoying your time. So, you know, I tell this story when, when Prince passed that uh, I was in this bar called the Rose Bar, just hanging out, you know, having fun, uh, promoting one of my events or something like that. And in walk these two huge guys. And then behind them is a smaller guy and a smaller woman. And I'm on the dance floor. And next thing I know, they're on the dance floor with me. And, you know, I look to my left and I'm like, oh, man, that's Prince, you know, and Maite and you know, his wife at the time. And I'm like, oh, this is this is crazy. Yeah. From that point, that gave me the ability to travel the world. And it was just amazing, mm-hmm. you know, because you're at the best parties, you're, you know, the best hotels, the best food, you're getting paid and, you know. But so Did that, you become like a male supermodel? Well, no, I wasn't a supermodel. I didn't aspire to be a yeah. supermodel. What's so. the definition of a supermodel? <laughs> um, I it's think... Like, I'm just a good model. I'm not a supermodel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you do magazines, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you'll do a couple of covers or something like that. And, right. You know, your name is known amongst yeah. the, the circles and then you get yeah, and you're called to do the bigger jobs, what's called campaigns. You Did know, you get to shag any supermodels. We won't address that on that's, this podcast. That's for everyone listening. <laughs> I, I have to do right by the people who are listening. All right. So quite, did you nail Naomi Campbell? Did you I wouldn't know. <laughs> Um, but, but, but we can say that I was connected to some <laughs> physically connected. I was connected to some women that went on to but you're not gonna name get names name. about themselves. But you know, what's it, the life like though? Is it what's the bad bit about being a model traveling the world? You know, it's a it's a great life. You make money. You travel the world. It's all the glitz and the glamour. But that's not what I set out to do mm-hmm. with my life. There comes a moment where you reflect and when you're traveling and you're not with an anchor and you're not you know with the mind to have growth growth meaning personal growth yeah personal growth but growth in a way that being tethered to one locale is necessary, meaning, you know, I missed school. There was a time where I just wanted expansion of the mind that self-reflection and reading and educating yourself could not offer. You know, I needed for me to have a specific kind of growth that I couldn't do, you know, as a, as a model. An epiphanous awakening when I was in Africa. And you look around and, you know, you start to see these kids that weren't able to go to school. Apartheid was about a lot of different things, 
But when you see these kids being able to get an education that they weren't able to get, you know, not too long ago, you know, that's not something you want to take for granted. And so I decided to enroll in university. My last semester at Miami-Dade College, I took this class, The History of Film Noir. It was a class where you do a comparison contrast with uh, the book and the movies. Mm-hmm. Explain what film noir is to some of them. Yeah, film noir are the films of like the 1940s, even going into the 1950s. Uh, black and white detective stories. You know, you have the femme fatale that comes in with a sob story. Mm-hmm. It's also a style of shooting the films where you use shadows and lights to mm-hmm. help tell the story. For me, it allowed me to understand visually how to tell a story. But doing that comparison contrast with you know, the written word and the visual image, all of a sudden it connected to me. So you did this uh, course and... I understood that connection between the, the moving image and the written word. And I wanted to become a screenwriter. Somebody asked me or told me to go down to University of Miami and, and speak with them because psychology was another love of mine. Mm-hmm. And I found that you could do a dual major of psychology so then you get a full spectrum, which was the beginnings of my philosophy in terms of being able to tell the story. At that point, when I was the here and now artist, I was still a visual artist. So I did a show at the Cultural Center downtown, made a piece called Greener Grass, Mixed Media. So I was always about this multimedia experience. So it was concrete with uh, AstroTurf, a wingtip shoe, nails, wire, and poetry. So, so what did you do when you came out of, with this degree that you got? While I was there in school, I started to see the bigger world of storytelling. You know, not just filmmaking. And when I say filmmaking, motion picture filmmaking, but you know, you start to see about documentary. Mm -hmm. And then since it's communications, you get to see about advertising. So you set up your own company? I started my company while I was there at the University of Miami. It was great. Okay. You know, because the name of Kevin's company is Kajik Multimedia. Kajik Multimedia. There'll be a link to that at the blurb. Kevin's the kind of guy who likes to find the wave before it's a wave, get (laughs) on it, or sit there waiting for it, but be the first on it. So you, you were one of the first guys who my view had a good grasp of transmedia to the point mm-hmm. where I think you're saying don't worry about transmedia it's been and gone but what was your I mean it isn't of course but it's become a kind of a cliche term I think yeah right. tell me about what Kajik was about and- my company is called Kajik Multimedia it's cross-platform storytelling okay. on one side of the company we have entertainment properties the documentaries are part of that and the Beach Chronicles that's part of it mm-hmm. on the other side we do what's now called branding you know we'll sit with the client and figure out what story do they want to tell the world come up with their color scheme you know all this stuff and so logo you have, you have this kind of uh, peripatetic early childhood then you have the modeling fashion design element the travel around the world the return to college the psychology the interest in film noir and all of this is starting to come together to the point where you open a company you start getting clients you start doing regular ad branding work cross platform mm-hmm. And then all of that maelstrom starts leading to this big new project, which you have had been on the go. We've been working together on it for six, seven years. or talking yeah. about it. 
Let's go there now. Tell us okay, about cool. the Beach, Beach Chronicles and what that actually is. So that, I'm hoping, by the way, to those listening, that this may be the first interview with the next sort of Star Wars thing. <laughs> it's kind of, it, it, this is this big an idea. So it really goes to the core of my belief about cross-platform storytelling. It's a huge story. You know, it's about creation. We call it a pulp noir sci-fi saga. So if you're doing the pitch Hollywood style, yeah. you'll say it's, you know, it's Blade Runner meets Chinatown meets Dune meets Miami Vice. Okay, there you go. So it's about a detective, an alcoholic, gambling, rambling detective. I love it already. <laughs> <laughs> that's drawn into the battle for all existence. And he's been a part of this battle, unbeknownst to him, since his inception. His father is from Earth. His mother's from another planet, another dimension. Yeah. He doesn't know that. His father is assassinated when he's three, and he's just raised as a regular kid. But we meet him where his life is about to change. And through one clandestine meeting with the femme fatale, Cherry Redding, that comes into his office one evening with this sob story. From that point, Dirk Jensen is introduced and pulled into what he's meant to be and he has a decision do I grow into what is could potentially be the salvation for existence or you know do I stay a self-centered asshole so I've I've been involved just listening to Kevin as he develops has developed this thing I've read some of the the novels, but what's interesting to those who are planning this, and I think Kevin knows this better than anybody, is he has it kind of planned in such a way that you know he knows what's going to happen if it was an eight-season TV drama. He knows the movie version. You just recently launched comic books, right? Tell us yeah. about them. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you. Let, let me just get yeah. into you know how the project evolved. Right. So I see things always through you know the longer form written word because again that's where my foundation came from so I wrote it as a novel first and it was my every intention to uh, to edit that novel and move it in that direction but we did these animated vignettes myself and my creative director Gianfranco Bianchi and they were super successful here sold out screenings we put those together we entered them in the Miami International Film Festival it got picked and then that short was passed around uh, we had a couple of other producers on board some of the celebrities that I already knew uh, Jimmy Jean-Louis from Heroes he was reborn he was in Joy with um, mm-hmm. that just came out <clears throat> not too long ago Asian. He played the Haitian, exactly. He is from Haiti. He's very famous in Haiti. Yeah, and, and, and he's actually the focal character of my second Haiti documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did a voiceover. And then I think the next person to do a voiceover was Joe Marie Payton from Family Matters. She saw the clip on my company's website, and she just got really excited about it. And she said, whenever you're going to do something with this, let me know. Well, that time came. And so, so then a few of the celebrities that I already knew, Pass it around to them. They said, hey, let's let's do this. People just started coming on board. So tell me where it's at right now. Yeah. So that animated version, you know, went to festivals, started working with a pretty big deal producer to do the live action, the live action TV show. Then I always conceived it as 
a multimedia project, you know, even, you know, trans, I'll use transmedia project because it's a huge story. And I always want to tell different parts of the story across different media platforms, which is what I believe in to have this engagement where you're blurring these lines for me was really important. You know, I wanted the project to be a living, breathing thing. And this was early on. Even I decided to work on, you know, different media platforms, but to be able to work with different artists, not only actors, because I've been able to now work with actors that, you know, I've always loved, you know, Michael Chiklis to Tommy Flanagan, uh, Daryl Hannah. So what we have here is a is a, a coming soon behind the scenes look at the development of what is likely to be a very big project over the next couple of years with a lot of people already attached to it. It's a complicated sort of story, I think that but but that's part of it, I think the charm of it. I think it is a a thing that people can dive into and find this is Kevin's intention, I think, that you can dive into it in so many different ways so there'll be some links on the podcast to the beach chronicles it's called and uh, go and have a play i think that's the way kevin likes people to just sort of go and explore the idea as it currently stands but again i guess we're com- we're looking at probably a 217 18 217 18 kind of time as yeah, yeah no 217 definitely i mean the comic book which is the visual representation of the podcast mm-hmm. so you know you Buy the comic book, you download the podcast, you listen as you read. Yeah, great. I should um, do that. We're coming up. Yeah, you, you should. Yeah, exactly. Podcast. Um, we came up with the sec- The second comic is coming out in about a month. Great. And that one features G- Jimmy, Jean-Louis, uh, Rami Jaffe from the Foo Fighters. You also yeah. talked to me about the social element to the, what you're trying to do. Briefly, very mm-hmm. briefly, try and give me a feel for what you mean by that. Yeah. So all of the projects that my company does are social projects overtly or covertly they have to do with the human condition oftentimes positive change Mm -hmm. you know towards making the world a better place you know and what I've come to find is many people take the information if it's too heavy in an adverse way well, they are, or, or they ignore it too hard. Oh, yeah, or yeah, exactly. But I, I, I think that that's adverse. You know, if of course, it you is. do yeah. ignore it because you, you, you can't ignoring something is the same so thing. Part as, of your storytelling is trying to initiate change, but deliver it in a, a velvet glove of entertainment. Yeah, I'll, like <laughs> <it is>. yeah. <laughs> coin that coin down. that phrase. That, oh, it's okay. We're recording it. Um, well, I call it a, tro- a Trojan horse. So, when you talk about affecting change, talk to me about the state of America because I know you're, you're mm-hmm. and, the, and racism and being a black guy in America today. Tell me about that. Let's go there. Yeah. So, I, I definitely tell people if you if you have any question about the morality of something, think twenty years back, think forty years back because it hasn't been that long. Mm-hmm. that blacks in this country have been able to vote or women in this country have been able to vote. Yeah, you may that we're in the... <clears throat> we're not we're not going to talk about the U.S. election because it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. And by the time this is out, it has happened. Let's hope Donald Trump is not fucking president. But he is, we, you, you had this... Uh, we had this discussion last night about the Donald Trump's line of Make America Great, and you had a great spin on that. Mm-hmm. So when you think about these connotations of, you know, make... America great again or you know we have to go back to traditional values I mean really 
what are you talking about when you say make America great again? You know, when was make it great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, was it great in the sixties, in the fifties? Yeah. Because in the sixties and the fifties, it wasn't great for someone like me. You know, even going into the seventies, there were still a lot of problems, and there's still problems now. You see them. If you're a black person, a lot of people don't realize this. Not all black people, but what you realize from a youth is you have to be careful and cautious in everything that you do. You know, my parents always raised me to, you know, if you're going to be in certain areas in the South, go through that town during the day. You know, if you're going to drive, don't go at night. You know, we would do a lot of cross-country trips because we moved a lot. And we would try our best during the day to go through certain places you know, a lot of the things that are, you know, kind of brewing now, mm-hmm. they've been happening for a long time, but now they're being filmed. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've been pulled over. Mm-hmm. I was pulled over in my own neighborhood. They blocked the entire street, pulled me over to the side. I was on, I, I chair the film and entertainment advisory board for Miami-Dade County. So I was on my way to an advisory board meeting and I was running a little late. So, you know, they told me they were looking for people not wearing their seatbelts. And, you know, to me, that was amazing. Really, you're going to have the entire police force here and all, you know, other police forces here that I didn't have on my seatbelt at the time. So I got a huge you know, ticket and then I went on about my way. So I come to find the next day that in that area they were looking for a black male, of even in my own neighborhood. I, you know, I try to walk during the day and night at night because I just don't want any any problems. And it's not necessarily problems from, you know, police stopping me, but. You don't want anyone to say, you know, there's this guy walking in the neighborhood. Look, I, I wear, I'll still wear my hoodie. No one's going to stop me from wearing a hoodie. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous. Gerardo there's Rivera, you're ridiculous. You're, yeah, you're ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was wearing a hoodie. Yeah. Come on. You know, but you don't want to be stopped. You don't want any any problems. Maybe someone saying there's a suspic- suspicious character mm. walking around the neighborhood. <clears throat> you end up, when you live here as an outsider... Make, it's very easy to make white America uncomfortable and I'm, I love doing it because I'm cheeky and I'm from Ireland and uh, the, it, there is just this real underlying racism at, at, at so many levels that's starting to unravel a little bit with the rise of Trump and, p- and people like that but there's people who constantly say they're not racist but you know are thinking it I'm talking about you Texas and I'm talking about a lot of the, a lot of the other southern states and then there's a sort of northeast intellectual part of America, or, uh, where, where you know the Bostons of this world, the, the New Yorks, where it is still extremely racist up there. And, well, and and I, you know, I despair of it sometimes. Sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, well, there's a, there is a litmus test, and the test goes something like this: if you have a different conversation behind closed doors, yeah. that you don't have when you're in public. And that is a form, you know. Well, that's of, the man of the mirrors. Like, I mean, I, I, I know personally five or six people who do have different conversations behind. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I do because yeah. those conversations have, ha- have happened in front of my face. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. oh, Kevin, but you're different. And I'm quick to tell people, no, I'm no different. I have a huge family, mm. huge family. You know, yes, there's some issues. But guess what? There's issues everywhere and around the world with any race. Like there's people shooting people in theaters or, you know, blowing up buildings. And, yeah. you know, so there's there's problems with all communities. But what's the Kevin Sharpley solution? 
Are you optimistic about the future? I am. Right, why? Yeah. I think in a big way because of what I'm saying now. Mm-hmm. You know, once you shine light on things and you're able to see, then you have a clear path yeah. towards change and making things happen. Moving forward, there's going to be even more light shined on people and organizations and things that have thrived on moving in darkness. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. But, you know, another conversation that we that we had before is you look to the youth and the youth have a way about doing things that are different than even the immediate generation above them. And they have to do things in that way because it's right there on the table. It's right there in your face. Yeah, you're a youth. That's what you do. Yeah, but you know, you know, now you can go online and yeah. see and become a part of this movement and see what's happening over here and over there. And I mean, I have a concern that they're not doing that, though. I feel that there's a certain... That they're apathetic. Being, yeah, they're apathetic and they're being swamped. And this, the time they are spending using this most powerful tool we've ever created as a race, the, 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 the internet. They're using it for like stupid, stupid reasons like, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians. And that, that's my sort of worry with it. The tech of it is new. Mm. The way of understanding it is new. But I feel that the evolution and the direction that it's going to move in and that it has to move in will have more to do with the connection to this planet and what we can do to connect with each other there's always going to be violence you know there's always going to be bad people I'll put it to you that way but you know the the positive is not as celebrated as it should be you would not know that this is the most peaceful time period in history and I think that needs to be celebrated and this is what I was talking about in terms of shedding light on, on, on situations I mean you know look at a lot of the films that have come out over the past few years, SeaWorld, they're getting rid, rid of um, their, yeah, their killer whales, you know? Fish. Yeah, Blackfish. No, but, you know, and so that's positive. Mm-hmm. Those These are the types of changes that are happening. You know, people are really looking at human trafficking in a different way, and they mm-hmm. have to, because now it's in your face. You can see it. Mm-hmm. We're a visually motivated society now, you know, whereas not too long ago we were a literary motivated society fact, people yeah. would you talked a lot about youth you have a beautiful um, and very smart daughter Anjali you're passing a baton of sorts to her what do you say to the Anjali's of this world who are, who are smart and what lessons have you learned that you pass back stay connected I think that's really important stay connected to stay connected to each other it's not just you know thinking about your neighbor you know and, and thinking about You know, even further than that, you know, a lot of the things that are going on in this country and a lot of the things that are going on in the world. But if you really think about it, it's some of the same problems. Problems can oftentimes, they're more dire in other places. But ultimately, it's the human condition. We want belongingness. We want loving. We want shelter. We want a lot of the same things. No matter the culture, no matter the race, no matter, you know, religion, country, staying connected helps to move the needle forward. Because if you have a mind of understanding your neighbor, when I moved into the the house I live in now, I made I made it a point no matter how 
much I may dislike um, some of the things that this neighbor does on my uh, north side or this person on my <laughs> east side or west side to at least make a concerted effort towards connecting with them. An effort. Disconnectedness. If you can really have a true desire to look through your neighbor's eyes, their situation, you will have a change about yourself. That is, I I think, a big problem on this planet is it's difficult for other people to try to see things in the way that their neighbor sees things. Almost a biblical end to a point which should only be going back to basics. Look after your neighbor and treat them as you would like to be treated yourself. Kevin Sharpley, thank you very much for being on a pint with Shawnee B. Everybody look out for the Beach Chronicles over the next 18 months or so. It's coming soon to a a multi-platform device or something near you. Kevin, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, Best of luck in the future and may all your dreams come true. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.